Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, John and team, as always, for faithfully leading us in worship this morning. Uh, a couple things. It is, it is good to uh, be with you guys. Uh, missed you guys last week. Uh, thank you for um, all the, the prayers and the text messages and the kind words. Uh, as we weren't here, for those of y'all who don't know, we, we weren't here because we had the uh, uh, chance to get to uh, go into the Dallas area and get to say goodbye to uh, Jill's grandmother. Um, before she passed away, she would have turned 89 on Tuesday. Um, and so we, uh, that's where Jill still is today. Um, we had a, uh, a funeral on Friday and a graveside on Saturday. And, and then I rushed back over here and she's still in Dallas soaking up as much uh, family time as she can get. And so again, uh, we, we, uh, we are so grateful for uh, y'all's prayers and the uh, church family we have here who uh, uh, spoke so kindly during that process. Uh, it truly was a celebration um, and a blessing blessing that here we are um, continuing our study in the book of John and, and all week been preparing, uh, looking over uh, this, this great miracle, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus and the great truth that's there. And so uh, it, is, it, is, it has been a blessing and it will continue to be a blessing and a comfort. Um, also, uh, since I wasn't here last week, I had to go online and watch the sermon. And so I watched Chris's message uh, and, I, and I saw at the end of his message the uh, clickbait um, that he uh, set out there, or at least the precursor to our disagreement, um, really setting me up on a, on a good solid foot. If you weren't here, you didn't listen online. Uh, Chris fervently urged you not to listen to the way that I read into uh, verse 16 about Thomas and, uh, and his personality there. Um, and I'm sorry to disappoint, um, but I'm not really motivated this morning to try to sway anybody uh, to the argument on my side. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm not very lonely on my side of the argument. In fact, there's, here's a list of a bunch of... Uh, Preachers and scholars who, um, so I would, I would hate, hate to convince you of my argument and leave Chris lonely out there on his side. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, Chris and I have enjoyed this argument about how we read into the personality of Thomas for a, for a long, long time. And, uh, and if you are curious, my whole journey was starting to kind of come to a different perspective of that started with uh, the reading of uh, Mark uh, 13 or Matthew 24 uh, parallel passages there. And so if you want to delve into that, you can read those. Uh, but it is, it is a fun thing to even get to, to argue about or get to disagree. Um, because what we're essentially doing, what we're both trying to do is we're trying to to uh, read a personality into a story um, because that's one of the great truths about Scripture and one of the great comforts to me is the reliability of, of Scripture uh, and the application of Scripture is that it was written uh, to real people involving real people's story. Uh, they had personalities. They had problems. They had successes. They had failures. Uh, these were real people. And so it's, uh, it, is, it is fun to get to relate to Scripture uh, and the very, the very personalities that they share. We see ourselves in them, the struggles that they have, we see ourselves in them, uh, the great proclamations of faith we want in our own lives. And so, uh, so it, is, it is always fun to get to kind of talk through um, those personalities and try to see, okay, where is this person coming from? What are they, what are they why are they saying what they are saying? Um, if, you, if you find uh, scripture to be just kind of a dry book of, of historical facts, then uh, I urge you this morning, you're reading it wrong. Uh, try to see the people that are in there. Try to see uh, the faces that are 
behind these names. Try to picture their lives uh, because that is exactly where Jesus shows up and that is exactly uh, where Jesus comes in with his great healing power uh, and accomplishing his work. Now, so last, last week, um, Chris... Chris had, had finished chapter 10 and started this story of, of chapter 11. Uh, and we realized after talking about uh, his sermon last week uh, and kind of processing it, he added some things in pretty last minute in his notes. And he actually kind of said some things uh, more as an aside. Uh, and, and really some of the most profound um, f- concepts that he was bringing attention to, he didn't really get to spend a whole lot of time in. Uh, and so we, as we were chatting about it, we decided to do something a little bit different for uh, today's sermon. And and, and we will be revisiting some of those things, but actually what we'll be doing is we're going to consider the whole story of Lazarus, uh, starting in verse 1 and going all the way to verse 44, um, because what we realize is sometimes when you do take the small sections and emphasize your way through the small sections, uh, you miss some of the beautiful pictures, some of the beautiful simplicities uh, that are found in the overall narrative. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to touch back on some of the things he commented on, uh, but really kind of fill in this whole story with a framework uh, for this picture, this, this miracle, this power uh, that Jesus displays in the raising of Lazarus. Uh, and, and as we do that, we're going to see that, he, that John is very intentional in presenting this framework, again, through specific characters. And so we're going to find these characters uh, and how they draw us to some of these larger concepts. Um, and again, hopefully we'll cover all the way to uh, verse 44. Um, but again, don't get, don't get too excited maybe thinking, well, finally we're making some good pace in the book of John uh, because Chris will probably follow up in the weeks to come to go back and break down some of these uh, sections that we're going to gloss over to find the big picture uh, to really focus in on the beauty uh, on some of the details that is there. And so I invite you, if you have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out, open them up to uh, uh, John uh, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can reach down into the chair in front of you or look down the racks and pull one of those out. Um, I encourage you that if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you could call your very own, uh, please take that one as a gift from us. We know that you will be um, blessed in your time in reading it. But for many of us, this is, this is a story, and uh, the story of Lazarus being brought to, um, from death back to life is one that is, that is familiar to us. Uh, certainly was familiar for me, to me from an early age. Uh, this was uh, one of the uh, many, many signs and miracles that John points to throughout his book. Uh, and again, as, as we were reminded last week, but it's always good to be reminded again, uh, this, this whole story serves as a great hinge in the, in the book of John, and actually accomplishes, and is one of the strongest arguments for accomplishing John's entire purpose of writing the book. Uh, the purpose of John is found in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. We summarize those things with three words, Jesus, belief, life. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, so this is the whole, whole purpose of the book of John. So that you will see the signs and come to know who Jesus is, responding to him then with belief, and then with belief comes the inheritance of life. His whole purpose is why, Jesus, why John records the story of Jesus bringing Lazarus um, back from the grave. Look down at verse four, but when Jesus heard it, Um, This is talking about Lazarus' sick news. We already covered this last week. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Then down in 14, then Jesus told them plainly, talking to his disciples, 
Lazarus had died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so here it is. We have, uh, we have Jesus saying that Lazarus' death is for his glory so that they may see his miracle, his power, and respond with belief, and then thus life as he gives life to Lazarus. These familiar, there's familiar elements that are, exist through this, this passage that we've seen uh, up until now through the book of John. We know that John uh, structures a lot of his gospel um, around uh, a lot of what he calls these signs, essentially these miracles, these signs that are here. Uh, this is actually the seventh and ultimate sign. There's seven signs in the book of John that John chooses uh, to walk us through this narrative. Uh, and this is the seventh of it. Almost the uh, accumulation of all the others. It's kind of the climax. Uh, and so we, we started way back with the water into wine. We had the healing of the royal official sons. We had the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. We had the feeding of the 5,000. We had the walking on water. We had the healing of the man born blind. And it's almost as if John is saying, uh, if you haven't seen these signs, and if you don't get that these signs are enough for you to believe and accept the life that he can give, let me show you to you by him actually raising somebody from the dead. This is the life and the power that he has. And so almost all of these seven signs are building up to this moment. Again, this is a, such a, a hinge uh, chapter or section in the book of John. John also, another familiar element that we're going to see here again in our story is that John not only walks us through these signs, but he also oftentimes through the teachings or in the explanation of those signs or miracles, uh, he gives us seven I am statements of Jesus. So here's a list of the, all the I am statements of Jesus. Uh, we're not quite at the seventh one, but we're at the fifth one. Not, again, not all of these are directly uh, told at the same time frame or in the same context as a sign or as a miracle, but this one is. This one in the five, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll see in verse 25. Entrenched here in the middle of this passage all about raising Lazarus from the dead. There's some other repeated elements that we're going to run into again. Uh, we're going to see yet again uh, in verses 9 and 10 that Jesus is going to be talking uh, about his, uh, his reasoning for doing things. Is not necessarily on his own time frame or his own schedule, um, but he is dependent upon the Lord, the Holy Spirit's guidance, um, the, his Father, uh, to reveal to him when he should go. Uh, we'll see yet again another delay, another uh, Terry in waiting for the, uh, uh, for the right time, the appointed time. Again, something that we've seen time and time again in the book of John. He tells uh, his mother, my hour has not come before he turns the water to wine. Uh, he tells his disciples he won't go to the feast in chapter 7, uh, then only to go when it is his appropriate time. And even this language that we're going to see in, that we see in 9 and 10 about him talking about the, uh, a very Jewish concept, about the hours in a day. Um, the Jewish audience would have, not would, have, would have certainly had 12 time frames that they considered the, the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And so it's not necessarily probably 12 literal hours he's referring to, but he's referring to the completeness of this day versus the contrast of night. And this is the same thing we saw in John 4. And he's, a lot of times, another element we're going to see, a lot of times we have this delay because Jesus is clearly walking uh, himself to the cross. He's not being held back by his disciples not going. Uh, he's not being forced there unwillingly um, by the uh, religious leaders who want to put him there. He is walking on his time frame, his schedule. It is his plan because he is the one in control. 
Here we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see at the end of this, uh, we're going to see actually in, in verse 53, um, we're going to see once again those who are, who are offended by Jesus, um, those who want to put him to death for the things that he did and the things that he said. Uh, but this time it's going to take a little bit more serious tone. We're really kind of, again, on this hinge chapter, the whole tone of the book of John from here on out is really going to change pace. Because now we don't have just the people responding to him in the immediacy, wanting to stone him for what he says, but now we have these leaders actually plotting against him. It says in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So it's really, really ramping up now. At this accumulation of this great sign, and people are left to choose, will they follow and will they believe and have life? And we'll see some in this very story. But then we'll see at the end of this, all, still all the more those who are set against Jesus, not to accept him uh, in belief, not to accept the life he freely gives. So how does John tell this monumental story, this, this hinge story found here uh, in chapter 11? Well, he does so again through characters. He gives us various parts, and he's highlighting some various things. John, when his writings, is making sure uh, that we see some, some key truths about God. Um, he does it kind of with a great um, literary repetition that we'll see, kind of some elements that'll move all throughout this whole story. Um, but ultimately, he kind of, each section can kind of be divided down by an audience of who he's talking to. Um, here's the four sections that we have, and if you go over to the next one, um, we'll see the characters that are associated with those uh, sections. So yes, last Sunday we talked about um, the opening parts of this story where we hear Jesus hearing the news of Lazarus being ill, um, and, and that audience primarily there is going to be the disciples. The disciples are the characters in the beginning part. Then we'll move into another section here where Martha goes and confronts Jesus, uh, and Martha is the lens of the character we'll understand. Um, then after Martha, Martha then takes Jesus over and goes and finds Mary and tells Mary that the teacher is looking for her, and then we see the next section kind of all focusing and revolving around the character of Mary. And then finally, the final section um, being that of Lazarus' involvement um, and the characters that we'll we'll get to and hear from that set that up, or at least are the mourners, um, since Lazarus at that the beginning time at least can't speak because he's still dead. Uh, but each of these sections highlight a uh, particular truth. And this is what we're gonna kind of be glossing through. But we, we started out, what we see, saw last week, we saw the motivation from Jesus of what he does in this whole time. What we're gonna see when he interacts with Martha is we're gonna see him uh, making a claim of showing his divinity, his divine nature, how he is in fact God and man together. This God-man is gonna be highlighted, the God part's highlighted with Martha. Mary highlights the man part where we'll see his humanity. Uh, and then to prove it all, to say this was the sign and then here is the proof and we'll see that coming from when Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. So we'll have the motivation of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and the proof of Jesus. And again, our aim this morning will be to elaborate each one of the sections from an overall view so that we can rightly see who Jesus is and accept him for what he can do for us. So let's start in, the, uh, in that first section, kind of rem remembering back, turning your brains to last week. Um, we're gonna be looking at that first section of the first 16 verses. Again, our characters here is gonna be the disciples. They're gonna be the primary ones we're having the conversation around. Uh, and the motivation here is to, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the truth here is to show Jesus's motivation. Why do we have this entire story of Lazarus? Well, the answer is gonna be coming right here. Look down in verse one. 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, was, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, this is Jesus, saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. This is our first hint at, the, at our first motivation. Our motivation coming from Jesus is that uh, Lazarus has gotten sick. His sisters send a messenger over to Jesus that we talked about. And, uh, and they deliver this message and they say, not Lord Lazarus is ill. But what are they saying? He, who, he whom you love is ill. So already we're getting this kind of introductory hint that what we're, probably our motivation that we're going to be focusing in on is going to be love. This is this address from this messenger, from relaying on uh, this request of these two ladies, uh, is for the Lord to remember how he loves Lazarus. We can we could have a, I could get off on a whole sermon here about right prayer, um, about the right posture of prayer, going before the Lord, not requesting things based upon how much we love him, but only getting to request things of him because of how much he loves us. But that sermon is probably for another day. Again, here we're going to see the love for Lazarus being hearkened on and beckoned upon, but it isn't just the love for Lazarus. It's actually the love for all of them. Look down in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. His love is for all three of them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Jesus' motivation in this whole thing, the motivation that we're supposed to be catching from John is going to be love. Jesus is motivated by love. This seems like an odd connection. We talked about the absurdity when Chris uh, read through this last time um, because we would answer this probably very differently. We would probably say, well, Jesus, if Jesus really loved Lazarus, why would he delay? I mean, Jesus can't possibly love Lazarus here or love his sisters or he wouldn't have delayed. He wouldn't have let Lazarus die. He would have gone to them immediately. But again, that's the way that we're tempted to see it. That's not the way the text says it to us. In fact, it's even, it's even clearer, this, the key word here that unlocks the shocking kind of truth or of realization of the motiv- motivation of Jesus is this word so at the beginning of verse six. This word so in Greek is the word un. Here's your fancy Greek word lesson of the day. Everybody say un. Un. Un is where we get the word so. And so normally has a good connotation of linking together. Um, You know, I'm hungry, so I got something out of the fridge, right? Well, why did I go to the fridge? Well, so gave that away. That conjunction pointed back to when I was hungry. Um, But... Some of y'all, and like myself, that, that word so has been watered down, um, being a child of the late 80s and early 90s with the Valley Girl influence, where so like, uh, it just became meaningless words always thrown in there, and so I tend to miss it, but uh, other translations here don't just rely on so, they want to make this emphatic connection, and so they actually translated the word therefore, so that you don't miss it. Why is it there? Why is this next sentence there? Well, it's therefore here because of this previous truth. Here's a little uh, snippet from a, from a word study. This un, this conjunction, can be translated therefore, now then, according to. It occurs 526 times in the New Testament and is typically, again, translated therefore, which means almost by extension, here's how the dots connect. 
So Jesus, going back to it, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. This whole ordeal comes about because Jesus loves. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus loves Martha. Jesus loves Mary. And Jesus loves us. This miracle of Jesus showing himself as God with the power to raise essentially the core concept of the gospel message and of salvation is rooted in Jesus' love. John Calvin on his commentary on John 11 says it like this, for whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps and he never forgets his people. Yet let us also be fully assured that he wishes all whom he loves to be saved. Our assurance um, of, of the salvation comes out of the assuredness of Jesus's love. But just like sometimes we're tempted to not see how this love would make sense. Well, if we were writing this, Jesus wouldn't have tarried. He would have gone right away. He would have saved him. Just like we're question, we can find ourselves questioning Jesus's love, that is exactly why we have the continuing story with the characters that we have it's because the first one we're going to see is we're going to see um, Martha questioning, being a questioner, questioning Jesus' intent, his love, seeing if this really puts together. And this is where we move into our next section with Martha. Again, we're going to be focusing on the divinity of Jesus, how God is divine. Look down in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is... The, the height of Jewish mourning, the fourth day. Um, rabbis at the time would teach that, uh, that the soul would linger around the body for three days. And then at the fourth day, the day that the body became unclean and, and fully recognized as decaying, the soul then would leave and depart from the body. And so, I, so over the uh, time of mourning, the fourth day was of particular importance. This is actually this point of decay is why probably Martha later on is worried about the stink that comes if Jesus opens the tomb. And continuing in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. These were probably friends. These are probably professional mourners. But whatever their intent is, what we're about to see is we're about to see some of Martha's personality show up. We know, we'll see in chapter 12, Martha, when she is uh, busy, while Mary is calm and at Jesus' feet, Martha is gonna, a quick-to-action type person. She's a go-getter. She's a doer. And this is exactly what we see in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And what does Martha say when she goes out and finds him? Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear the despair in her voice? You hear the frustration? The emotion that she's having to struggle through? She's taking that to Jesus. Lord, I thought you loved Lazarus. You should have been here. You could have saved him. Yet in her despair and questioning of Jesus, she does something that is very commendable. She at least can respond with truth. She responds with the truth, with the doctrine with something that she knows true about God and about Jesus. I think she does go. She is questioning. Clearly, she is questioning uh, Jesus' love for them and for Lazarus by letting him die. 
but she doesn't forget, and she at least wants to say, even if I don't feel this, this is what I believe. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I don't think that this is, she is saying here in this verse that she's expecting Jesus to actually raise Lazarus from the dead. Again, we clearly get that because when the, tomb is, when the stone is rolled away, she's the one who's saying, no, 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 no don't do that. He's going to stink. Like, I don't think she's expecting this at this point. I think what she's doing is in her grief, she's only at least holding on to what is true. She's saying, I don't necessarily feel this, but I know I still believe it. I believe that you are from God. Yet I'm struggling to understand how you let this happen. How you love me. But I know you're true. I mean, how relatable is this for us? I mean, this is essentially what we did in the mourning process for Jill's grandmother the past several days was we carried a burden. There's a presence that's missed. But when we gathered together, you know what we said? He said passages like this, but in Jesus, you have the power of resurrection in life. And even though we were sad, and even though we were heartbroken, we praised him for her whole body, well now in his presence. It didn't, those truths don't undo our emotions. Those truths don't diminish our feelings. Those feelings are very real. We can still question and say, God, why do we now not have grandmother in our lives? But we know a truth. And this is, I think, what Martha does here. Is she questions Jesus and questions his love. But how does Jesus respond? He responds by giving her a powerful truth. Look down in verse 23. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. What a simple, simple truth. And Martha almost continues this idea of citing doctrine or dialogue. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. This was a, a concept. The concept of resurrection on the last day was one that was familiar to Jews of the day. In fact, it was a big difference between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, if you remember back to your Sunday school lessons, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection in the last day. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? All those cute little reminders that we have of those songs. Uh, so so this, this concept of the resurrection of the last day was prominent amongst, amongst the, the Jews. And so what Martha's continuing in is, is Jesus is, she's already responded with this truth, I trust you. Um, I, I question you, but I, I, I ultimately still know you're from God. And then he says, well, your, your brother, he's going to live. And she continues, citing this doctrine of, yeah, yeah, I believe. I believe he will, he will continue to live. But almost what she's forgetting is that what Jesus is doing here is he's actually, he's actually making this doctrine about himself. He's actually pointing to Martha and saying, he's saying yeah, yeah, you're attaining to this. The whole reason of doctrine, the whole reason doctrine is, is founded, truth is founded, is it's founded in the person of who Jesus is. 
Warren Wearsby puts it like this. I'll put it on the screen. When you are sick, you want a doctor, not a medicine book or a formula. When you're being sued, you want a lawyer, not a law book. Likewise, when, you're face, when you face the la your last enemy, death, you want the Savior, not a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. And this is Jesus' response to her question. This is the powerful truth that he gives as he makes it about himself. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives believes in me and believes in me shall never die. Essentially, Jesus is saying, yes, Martha, I do love you. I love your sister. I love Lazarus. And the truth you know, the doctrine you're reciting, that's, tr that's true. I mean, to tell you why it's true. It's true because it's found in me. Your brother will live again because I am the embodiment of love and truth. And then he responds to asking her this great question, do you, setting up this awesome moment for her confession, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. William Hendrickson, a, a, a rather older commentary, uh, put it like this, Martha's confession is positive, heroic, and comprehensive. It is indeed very touching, all the more remarkable because it was under such a trying circumstance. Yes, Lord, I believe. It's actually in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. It probably should be translated, yes, Lord, I have believed. I continue to believe. It's something that I, I know and believe in you, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. And with this great confession, what does she do? She goes and finds her sister. So here we get to our second character in here. Now we're with Mary. Mary and Jesus now interact. And what we see again, the big truth is we're going to now see the humanity of Jesus. We, won't, we saw him as God, and now we're going to see him as man. Verse 28. When she, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Mary, like Martha, is still in despair here. But when she hears that the teacher is coming for her, she leaps up. She goes quickly. This is almost a, this is verb here is to communicate movement before movement. It's like she started walking before she actually fully stands up. That's how urgently she is going to find the master. And what does she rush to Jesus to say? What does she do? The words are repeated of Martha's story. Look down in 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary weeps at Jesus' feet and questions him just like Martha did. Is, this, is, your, is your true motivation from love? you loved us, why, why did you wait? I mean, how relatable, again, is this? Instead of Martha focusing on necessarily a doctrine in, grief, in, in her grief, Mary's just unabashed with her grief. She's crying in front of him. So how does Jesus respond this time? Because in all these doubts of questioning his emotion, he comes up with a response. Last time he came and gave a powerful truth. This time he gives a powerful emotion. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we get the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. The shortest verse, surely, but yet with the deepest truth. What we see is we see Jesus proclaiming that he is the resurrection and life. He is God. And yet now we see his humanity. As God, he's choosing to relate in emotion to this broken world. And he himself weeps. For the longest time, I, I was always taught that this was simply because uh, he has now seen Mary mourning, uh, and he has now seen these mourners mourning, uh, and he has compassion for them, and he weeps because he's sad. He's sad for Mary. He's sad for Martha. He's sad for these mourners, and he's ultimately sad for Lazarus as somebody he loves. And I don't want to minimize that. I think with emotion comes complexity, and surely that is a part of it. But there's actually a deeper thing that's going on that's actually seen here in verses 33 with this citing of why he is deeply moved in his spirit or greatly troubled. John uses two distinct Greek words here. The first one, deeply moved, describes an angry, outraged, and indignant attitude. This word is actually a word derived from the angry grunting of a war horse. Jesus is weeping because he is angry. Similarly, greatly troubled is a strong verb indicating a great emotional turmoil. Not a simple complex one. It isn't, yes, again, it is probably because he is sad. But it's not just sadness alone because he knows he's about to replace their grief with joy. He knows that he's not mourning over Lazarus because he's going to be with Lazarus again. He here is moved to tears because he is angry. Who is he angry at? Remember the antagonist from last week. He's angry at death. Death stands opposed to his love. He's angry that death is what is causing these, to, these people, the ones whom he loves, death is what is causing them to question his love and his goodness. And I think this angers him. And we see this because we move into our final section with one more character. Here, Jesus now interacting with Lazarus. Lazarus again can't speak, so we see the mourners um, setting this up. Jesus has wept, verse 35. So the Jews say, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Now the mourners are even picking up on this fact. If he really loved him, why did he let him die? Jesus' motives of love has been questioned this whole time. For the first, he responds to Martha with a powerful truth. To Mary, he responds with his powerful emotion. And now to everybody, he's going to respond with a powerful power. A powerful resurrection, we should say. He hasn't lost the emotion or anger. Look down in 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, this is the same word as above, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. His soul here in this moment is held by rage and he's finding himself in advancing on the tomb. Again, Calvin's word puts it, he advances on the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. He is going to battle. He is this angry war horse about to stand up against death. B.B. Warfield put it like this, it is death that is the object of his wrath. Behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into this world to destroy. Jesus here is going to destroy his enemy. 
Well, we get this great, before we jump into that, we get this great almost summary of where we are. Jesus says in 39, take away the stone. Martha here says, Lord, it's gonna stink. What are you doing? Uh, he's been dead for four days. Again, so relatable. Even after this great proclamation, here she is once again forgetting and being distracted by the practi- practical one. Jesus reminds us of his divinity. He reminds us of his humanity. And now he's gonna say, I'm gonna display my power to prove both of those He says to to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I knew that you always hear me, but but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I am, I am yours, I am doing your work, and my goal is in love to let everybody see what you're accomplishing through me. So in verse 43, when he has said these things, he cries out in a loud voice and says, Lazarus, come out. In the Greek, it literally means Lazarus, here, outside. I love that, I love that simple. Lazarus, here, outside. Like there's nothing holding you back from this. Jesus is motivated entirely by love. When his love is questioned, he gives this powerful truth that he is the resurrection and he is the life. He displays his divinity. And then when he's questioned again by Mary, he then responds a second time with a powerful emotion. He cries, he weeps. Yes, for sadness of them, but mainly out of angry for what death is standing in and up against him. But he's not left in those tears because death doesn't have a foothold against him. Death isn't an enemy in which he can't accomplish something great by destroying. And so now he responds with this powerful resurrection, calling Lazarus out from the grave. This is why the Apostle Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not fall asleep, but we will all be changed in an instant in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For that which is corruptible must clothe itself with incorruptibility and that which is mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when this which is corruptible clothes itself with incorruptibility and which is mortal clothes itself with immortality, then the word that is written shall come about, death swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. And this is the application this morning, is that the same Jesus who fiercely loved these characters fiercely loves you. He will not spare us from the troubles of sin and death, but he will spare us from sin and death. Because he is the one who can save. So the question is, how? How will we respond to his love and believe in his name and accept his life that he wants to give? I'm gonna invite John to come back up and lead us in a closing time. And whether you stand or whether you sit or whether you come forward and pray, whether you gather with folks at the right side of the room to pray with them, whatever it is, I implore you, Consider Jesus' love for you and the power that he has to give you life, freedom from sin and death. Consider him. 
If you've never accepted that free gift, this could be the day of salvation. Put your faith in him. If you have, thank him for that gift that he has given and continue to pray for him to provide for you the abundant life found in his accomplishment, not in yours. But however it is and whatever you need to do, now is the time to reply.